Oh my God, we're back again. What's up, all you beautiful people? How you doing? No, it's it's been a while. How's it been for you? We're back here with another exciting installment of the Bartcast. It's beautiful Friday the 13th. Ooh, Friday the 13th. Woo. I didn't even realize that when I started recording, but here we are. Um, this is not going to be a very spooky podcast, but uh, but hopefully one that you find exciting. Um, I'm going to jump right into it with y'all. My guest today is a lovely, lovely human uh, who I had the pleasure of meeting while traveling in Costa Rica. Um we met at this at this restaurant bar they were doing a uh what was it it was like a late october fest i think in this little town of dominical on the west coast pacific side of costa rica and we started talking and i just thought she was a super interesting person um later came to learn that she uh, works at a wildlife rescue and recovery center in the in, in that area in Costa Rica. And as I learned more about it, I was like, hey, this is a great example of the type of guests I want to book for my podcast. Um, I go into it a little bit on this podcast, but, uh, you know, I have this dream for this you know, YouTube channel, podcast, uh, platform that I will create at some date, but essentially it's, you know, serving this need I see in the world, which is for young people who are, you know, still kind of trying to figure out who they are and what they value, um, but may not be ready to commit to like the big college track or a career path you know i think in our culture we have this tendency to in lieu of any like real cultural tradition of of coming of age or rite of passage for a lot of people that rite of passage just means finding a job and maybe getting an apartment or something and we see so many people suffering from burnout and midlife crisis and feeling like they wasted so much time that they're stuck in a dead end job that they don't love that doesn't fulfill them. Um, I think that as a society, we would be so much better served if we could increase the number of people that are actually engaged in doing work that they, that they really love and that they really feel speaks to them. So to that end, uh, you know, in my life, traveling has been the greatest teacher, the greatest source of self-knowledge in helping me to determine what my path is, what I'm meant to do, what I value, uh, and, and who I want to be. And that's something that I, you know, I was, I was blessed to have some early teachers who were well-traveled, who shared their adventures. That really inspired me. But I know for a lot of people, um, traveling is kind of this like esoteric dream that 
you know, they don't really know how to get started. They know they want to go travel, um, but it can be a bit intimidating before you've actually done it. So to that end, it's my dream to eventually to do this show, this travel show where every episode I am exploring and outlining a, how do I say this? An option for people that are just starting out traveling, you know, here's something you can go do uh, that will help you build some meaning into your life and learn a bit about yourself and gain some real world experience. Um, You know, whether it's a yoga retreat or, you know, English program or, you know, teaching English abroad or or a volunteer situation. Um, I think that the world is full of amazing opportunities uh, you know, of self-discovery, of service, of, you know, ways to get out there and experience the world and learn something about yourself. So this project, you know, this is something that I, that I continuously am thinking about and is a big goal in my life. And to that end, this episode to me is kind of an example of what I want that channel to be. I think Ideally, this is something that I would do in person. I'd be going down to this center and highlighting it, you know, both with video and with a podcast so that um, perspective perspective travelers uh, can kind of browse through a buffet of options and select uh, something that can kind of get their own travel experience jump-started um, via one of these programs and, and maybe get them excited. And hey, if there's one thing about us Americans, like I think that the more of us that can become more worldly, the better. Uh, you know, there's p- plenty of my my countrymen and women go their whole lives without ever leaving the States. And that microcosm really does affect the way that we think about the world and our ability or inability to connect to it and identify with people of other cultures. All that being said, my guest today is a wonderful, lovely human being. She is the head of the volunteer program at Alturas Wildlife Rescue Center in the Dominical Uvita region of Costa Rica. And, uh, and just, I had a blast talking to her, super informative. We go into the whole program, what the center does, how she came into the work and what it, uh, what it takes to be a volunteer, what it consists of. So hopefully you all find this interesting and informative and, and who knows, maybe it'll inspire some of you to get out there and go volunteer and, you know, give some sloths baths and you know, get, build up a stronger connection to yourselves and nature. Um, seems like a pretty cool place, pretty happening. So without further ado, let me introduce to you my friend, Christina Atsopati Shellman on this episode 52 of the Bartcast. Great to hear from you. What a surprise. The water, yo. The water's on our side, yo. We're running with the water. It's the best.
All right, Christina Atsopati Shellman. <laughs> very good. Welcome to the <laughs> Bartcast. Thank so you for having have, me. Yeah, it's so good to have you on here. We got a. I've done now, I think two two uh, podcasts with people that I met in Costa Rica. So oh, that's very cool. I'm stoked to uh, to have you on this one. Thank you so much for coming on. And of course, thank you for having me. This is my first podcast experience. Really yeah <laughs> well you're doing great already you're okay, natural thank you <laughs> thank you so um I, as i just said we're speaking uh you're speaking to me from costa rica um can yes. you give my listeners just a like a little bit of context about uh where you're at uh what you do what your role is there alturas wildlife rescue center um mm -hmm. Because I think that that would be a cool place to start. Yeah, of course. So as you said, this is Alturas Wildlife Center, Rescue Center, Sanctuary, a little bit of everything. And um, we are located in Costa Rica on the Pacific coast, um, seven kilometers south of a small little surf town called Dominical. Um, our, we've been working for about seven years. We've been established for about seven years. Basically, our aim and our goal, what we do is we rescue any wild animal that's injured, uh, confiscated or orphaned. And our aim is to rehabilitate them or raise them and send them back into the wild. We have a fully equipped vet clinic on site and a full time vet staff. Um, so any kind of procedures, physiotherapy, acupuncture, everything's kind of done on site. Um, and of course, sometimes animals are not releasable for a number of different reasons. So we also have a wildlife sanctuary. So that's where we offer them or provide the animals with refuge for the rest of their, of their lives, the animals that can't be released. Um, so primarily we have a lot of animals that have come from the pet trade. So in Costa Rica since 2012, it's actually illegal to have any wild animal, any native wild animal as a pet. And so like 90% of the animals we have in our sanctuary were previously kept as pets, like all types of monkeys, parrots, and most of them in pretty bad conditions. And because they have been probably born in captivity or just have spent their whole life in captivity, they wouldn't really survive in the wild. And some of them have like paralyzed limbs or neurological disorders or just like aggression towards humans so that you can't release them because they would try to kill any first any person they see. And so what we do is, yeah, we kind of manage these two different centers on site over here. Um, the main reasons why we get animals, um, the number one reason is road traffic accidents, unfortunately. Um, we are located in a part very close to, it's called a biological corridor, so where we connect to the north of the country to the south. And so there's so much wildlife here, it's a crazy amount of diversity. Um, but unfortunately, having this big highway running through it, we get a lot of um, animals that are hit by cars. Um, we also get a lot of electrocutions, which is probably something um, you guys don't really have the issue with in the States. Over here, the electricity lines are not insulated. So a lot of animals that climb like sloths or monkeys will use these electricity lines to get from one side to the other, um, but they're not insulated. So they get pretty badly electrocuted. Um, we get a lot of pets, so people taking animals from the wild and keeping them as pets, and then these are confiscated. Um, and quite a few domestic animal attacks, actually dogs and cats are 
um, the cause for a lot of animal for a lot of species wild species to go extinct um, so for example if a sloth climbs down a tree to take a nice poop and mm -hmm. um, that's like the perfect time for someone's um, dog to run attack it and kill it or injure it so we get actually a lot of those kind of cases and the only case we get that's not um, anthropogenically caused which means that's not affected by humans is just orphans so a mother if she sees that her young is sick or there's something wrong with it she's just going to naturally reject it uh, and abandon it which sounds really harsh but it's all about survival of the fittest her leaving her young behind is just food for another animal and of course we don't want to interfere with nature but if people come across um you know like a baby sloth on the side of the road and they bring it to us we're not going to say like oh this is natural just take it back there and, and leave, it, leave it to die um, so we do have a lot of animals that we've actually raised or we have here in our sanctuary that have birth defects, have neurological issues because they were meant to be just left out and they were meant to be food for other animals, but obviously people interfered and brought them to us. Um, so that's a little bit of an overview of us. What I do here is I've been working here for the past four years. Um, I actually arrived with a six month contract and then I just never left. It just kind of stuck with me. Um, but I'm in charge of the volunteer and the internship program. So I'm the program manager here. Uh, we have a very small um, group of staff, like permanent staff members. The majority of the work um, is done by volunteers and interns. So anyone from anywhere in the world can come and live with us for a week to three months. And um, we're, we train them according to our policies and procedures, and they help us with the daily care of the animals. And then I also provide internships for like vet people like in vet school or who are studying conservation to come here to also get um, like hands-on experience. Um, and we do lectures and workshops and um, they also have the opportunity to work on, to carry out independent research. So it's kind of like they're helping us with the work, um, but they also get a lot of experience which they would need to go out into the, to work further in that field of study. Awesome. A worthy cause. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how I'm curious, how did you get into this kind of work? Like, like how do, how is it that you found yourself at the wildlife sanctuary with, with your six-month contract? Um, well, I studied uh, in the UK. I have a master's in wildlife conservation. Um, I have my bachelor's in earth science. And the first day of the master's in the UK, the, the dean of the course said, okay, the best place any of you can hope to work work with wildlife is in Costa Rica, because apart from obviously immense diversity, the government here puts a lot of emphasis on the protection of wildlife. And whilst in other countries, you obviously do have great amount of diversity, but it's always a bit of a struggle with trying to get things put through. But here we do have a lot of help from the government, not financial help, but um, you know they're the ones that are going and confiscating animals and bringing them to us. So I came here just to get some work experience. I was doing some research with sea turtles, with sloths. And then someone I actually went to university with was working here and she wanted to leave. Um, so she posted and I was like, oh, I'll, I'll just try it out. Um, and I came here and just kind of stayed on. I never really left. What, what got you into, you know, animal conservation in the first place? Was Has this always been something you've been interested in and? I'm mm -hmm. curious how that story started. Um, I don't really know, to be honest. I mean, I've always, I never really, since I was young, I never really knew 
what I wanted to do in my life. I wasn't one of those people that was like, yes, I'm going to be an engineer or a doctor. I never really had a like sure vision in my head. I, of course, always loved animals, but um, I'm from Malta, which is a very tiny island in the Mediterranean. We don't have much animals or much wildlife. Um, so it wasn't something that I was always surrounded with. Um, I studied, I went into university in Malta then, um, and I took part in this course that had just opened up called Earth Science, which was a very broad course on different aspects. We were studying soil and oceanography and like a lot of random different environmental topics. And one of the topics was conservation. Um, and somehow it just, I was just drawn to it. I was like, well, this is really interesting. And after I finished my bachelor's, I took um, some time off. I took about a year off and I traveled um, a lot of Central America, um, some countries in Asia and Africa. And I did a little bit of volunteering here, here and there. And I just fell in love with, with the concept of trying to do good, trying to make up for all the bad that's going on in the world. Um, and then, so after that, I just applied to some different courses in university. Um, then I, I got into the, the masters in the University of Bristol. And um, yeah, it was a very full on um, conservation related course. And it was great, I learned a lot. And part of that, we had to do our thesis. And I just, I always loved elephants. There was something about elephants that I was always been drawn to. Um, so I had no plan what to do for my thesis. And I was like, okay, I just want to do something with elephants, which is pretty hard to do in England because, you know, <laughs> they don't have elephants. Yeah. Um, but through contacts, I eventually went to Thailand, but we, I was living in a very small um, community with, called the Karen tribe, very close to the Myanmar border. And I was working there with an English NGO. Um, what they were trying to do was basically ecotourism. So kind of like how you go to Africa and you go on a safari, you pay money and you go out into the bush and you see wildlife from afar and you don't stress them out. You don't touch them or ride them, but you're just able to observe them and respect them from afar. And um, this charity I was working with was trying to establish this um this tourism model in Thailand. So basically they were taking all the elephants that they were using for um, tourism. So, you know, a lot of people go to Asia to ride elephants or to go to circuses. And so they were taking the elephants and their mahouts, which are basically their elephant owners back into the jungle where actually the elephant owners are from, where they can be with their family. And people would come for three days, hike into the jungle with the mahouts, uh, watch the elephants from afar, just a very simple ecotourism model and um, so I was there for a few months and I was studying um, the behavior it was a very new concept so I was studying how the elephants were reacting with the presence of tourists and when they were in there and seeing if actually if tourists present had any impact on them um, good or bad and then yeah that's kind of where it all started that's when I really got like my first hands-on experience and then from then I always had this dream to come to Costa Rica and everything kind of just fell into place that's awesome. And living with elephants sounds like such a, they seem like one of those animals where, uh, because there's such a high level of intelligence and personality, yeah. mm -hmm. I could see that really being like a journey of like self-discovery and reflection as well. Mm -hmm. I'm curious yeah. like if you had any, you know, um, you know, if that provided you with any insights about your own humanity or your own role in this world, getting to be with these majestic creatures. 
Yeah. Um, wait, is this a question or? <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I mean, like, did did you know? Um, did that kind of change your perspective on what it means to be human being with with these elephants? Um, I guess you could say that for sure. I definitely gained more respect for them and um, realized that you just honestly living there and living in the middle of nowhere, you just realize how little you actually need in life to survive and to be happy, especially living just not just with the elephants, but amongst um, the village people. They have so little and that's really all you need to really need in life. So I think it was more not from the animal perspective, but more the experience as such and um, really changed me. And I, I not that I was very consumerist before, but I'm very anti-consumerism now i try to live with as little as possible and that was definitely where the whole where, where the journey began because i i had to live with so little there for a few months mm-hmm. and then that kind of made an effect yeah it's it's interesting um when you think about like the the effects of capitalism on conservation mm-hmm. you know one of the one of the things i've heard um that i know is like contra- a controversial topic kind of and <laughs> There's, it, it's not as straightforward as one might originally think, you know, getting back to what you were mentioning in Africa with these, these big parks, these private, um, mm-hmm. you know, parks, uh, where people come and they do safaris or you have like the hunt, the big hunting parks, uh, you know, yeah. nobody wants to see like a picture of a hunter with a rifle with a dead lion or these like megafauna that they're hunting. But mm-hmm. I've, but I've heard that like, that's also strangely like what is key in some ways protecting these animal populations because it's there's so much poaching there's so much uh like black market trade that in some ways like the the commercialized hunting of these animals is like ensuring that there's a living population i know that's kind of a complicated yeah uh you know there's definitely lots of emotions around it and people have very strong opinions, but yeah, uh-huh. I'm curious what your opinion is of that whole. Um, yeah. Industry. I mean, that's like a big topic on, on ethics and what's mm-hmm. right and wrong. And actually in university, we had a lot of debates on this subject because there's different kinds, like there's canned hunting, right. Where the mm-hmm. animals are actually bred in captivity and people pay like a bunch of money to, to come and shoot the animals. And then there is, um, For example, again, I'm going to take the example of elephants. If you have a really old bull, which is the male elephant, um, that is the the bull in charge. You know, he's not going to let any of the other males breed, but he's old. He can't reproduce anymore. Um, What some conservation programs do is that they're, I guess you're interfering with nature, right? So this is where my issue lies, is that people have to always kind of, manage and handle things and that's what my my issue with the problem is but basically certain uh, programs will say okay there's going to be people that want to shoot wildlife whether we want it or not so why don't we like make money off of something that has to be done anyway so actually they'll get people that will pay a lot of money to shoot the male bull like th- i'm talking about thousands of dollars yeah. and with that money they can use to create better fencing for anti-poaching um uh, campaigns so they use that money for conservation but it's very uh, it's like i don't know i have a little bit of issue with this but of course i'm also not in the situation where 
I'm not working in a, in a center where we're really like desperate for money that we have to jeopardize the animals, even though, you know, the animals are probably going to die anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not totally for that. Oh, well, I'm not for that at all. Um, but I do understand where it comes from in that sense. But then if you talk about canned hunting, just making money um, from animals that are, have been literally in, in captivity their whole life, that's, I don't see how that is okay. I mean, that's just a whole lot, many issues on ethics, my personal opinion, right? right. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's complex, right? Because we would all immediately, like I would assume immediately, right, that like going and killing like, a lion or, or, you know, going in and, and just going for a trophy, you know, I think, you know, there, you could make an argument if you're hunting to support your family, to feed you're, you're eating, you're using the animal. Mm-hmm. I think that there's an art, you know, an argument there, especially if you're coming from a culture where that's part of your tradition. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it gets more complicated when you are like, thinking about, you know, what it's like on the ground in a real world context. It's not a, there's no perfect solution. It's not like that this is necessarily, you know, a, a, um, a fully positive thing, but the irony is Mm -hmm. that that imperfect system in this modern kind of capitalist, uh, exploited worlds might be the only thing right now that's keeping these fragile populations alive. And I think, I think that kind of can be more complicated than people. Yeah. First. uh, Exactly. There's always so much more to the story than, than the surface. Yeah. And you Mm -hmm. know, one of the things when, when I was, you know, when I was traveling in Costa Rica and where I met you, I uh, was, was on the, before I came to Dominical, I was on the Caribbean side and mm-hmm. ended up visiting the Jaguar Center in Puerto Viejo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, when we did the tour, uh, you know, learned about the power lines, learned about, you know, the, just the, the effects of basically humanity on these, these populations. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that really shocked me was uh, was how large the number of animals were that they were getting in like every week. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, I was thinking maybe a couple of months, like that's, but they, they were getting like, they, you know, large numbers in like almost every week. I'm yeah. curious at your center, what, you know, how many animals come in? Do you, do you see coming in every week? What do those numbers look like in Dominical? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we we are one of the busiest centers in the country. We get, on average, at least one animal a day, on average. There's days, like yesterday, we got four animals in. Today, so far, we've only gotten one, a hawk. Um, it's a constant thing. There's And it's always, like, Murphy's Law. There's always going to be a day when we get six, seven animals, and there might be another day where there's absolutely nothing. Um, And this is, of course, all the work on top of caring for the animals we already have. We have about, um, in total, about 75 individuals right now in the whole center, like including sanctuary and the rehab. Um, But yeah, we get quite a lot. The number one reason why we get animals is the pet trade. It is the confiscations. And out of all the animals, it's parrots that we get the most. Um, just because I think because of um, the the amount of 
years they live you know and if you look at a scarlet macaw for example which is the largest parrot species we have here on the pacific and they can live up to 70 years old um, so a lot of these animals were probably it was probably legal to have them before and then when everything changed um you know this is why we're getting a lot of confiscations and we actually don't have space to accept any more parrots so we'll take them in we'll obviously care for them treat them and then we transfer them to other centers where they do have space for them just because we are at full capacity in our sanctuary yeah and how many how many animals are permanent residents of your sanctuary mm -hmm. we have about 35 permanent residents um there's obviously every now and then we add a new one um but for the most part like i said we try to release all the ones that we believe are releasable um so in the sanctuary we have um a few monkeys of different species of monkeys squirrel monkeys um spider monkeys and capuchins um sloths peccaries we have an ocelot which is one of the um wild species of cat here um a crocodile a lot of parrots um <laughs> anteaters yeah a little bit of everything really what's what's the uh in your experience like what are the most like labor intensive to to take care of and maintain is there is there a particular species where it's like oh that's the really tough one or these ones are really easy to work with or um i mean i definitely say birds birds are like very messy animals are also extremely intelligent so Apart from just cleaning and feeding them every day, we do a lot of emphasis on enrichment here. So enrichment are like items we give to the animals to keep them primarily mentally stimulated, but also physically stimulated. So something similar, uh, simple enrichment related that we do is we never just give the animals a plate of food. We'll take their food and like climb around the enclosure and hide it in different places so that they have to fly around to find it. Or we'll do like puzzle feeders or, or hide boxes. And um yeah, because parrots are so intelligent, we try to do a lot of extra enrichment for them. Um, but they're just very messy, loud birds. I don't understand how, how people want them as pets. Um, but they're definitely, and, and they have attitude, you know. If they don't like you, they're going to let you know they don't like you. And they'll fly on your head and try to peck at your feet. Um, so they're the ones, especially I can talk about in terms of work-related, that like the volunteers, are a lot of them are scared to go in with the parrots because they are so intense. Um, those big knives on their face you know? oh yeah exactly <laughs> and um and they they can smell fear you know so when there's someone who's like a little bit timid they, they'll know that that's the one they need to harass the most um but otherwise all the others are are pretty calm capuchin monkeys are are they do it just to like mess with us right so they'll Obviously, we try to clean very well because we don't have an, a dirty enclosure that's going to attract rodents and ants. So um, the capuchins, we give them like quite a diverse diet. And one of the things we give them are, are red peppers, like, you know, the raw red pepper. Mm -hmm. And the capuchins will literally peel the skin of the red pepper into little pieces, drop it everywhere, and then they'll just eat the inside. So that's like fun with all the cleaning and mm -hmm. it takes quite <laughs> quite time consuming. Yeah. <laughs> on i'm curious what uh like on average what percentage of animals that you see coming in are, are able to be fully rehabilitated and released back into the wild versus you know animals that have to end up being permanent residents or, or move to other sanctuaries mm -hmm. um if you don't take the confiscated 
animals into consideration because majority of the time with a confiscated animal they're not going to be able to be released unless they're really young and they haven't been with people for that long so if you don't consider those about 60 percent of the animals we receive are we release so we have about a 60 percent rate uh, of course we deal with death a lot of times and um, which people don't really understand a lot of people are used to um domestic animals like your dog and your cat but we we take this approach which is called um con- conservation medicine so if we're going to have um a monkey that comes in electrocuted really badly in its leg and we know that they cannot survive in the wild for example because they have as a crucial part of their limb that they can't use to climb Um, and we don't want to have the animals in this the animals we have in our sanctuary are there because we think that they can have a good value of life, good quality of life, even though they are in captivity. And um, so if we have, for example, this monkey that we know can't, be, can't move, or for example, a, a raptor with permanent wing trauma that it can never fly again, we're not just going to keep it in the sanctuary just for the fun, the sake of having it as a, as a fun animal. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, we do tend to resort to euthanasia. Um, also just being able to grab a wild animal and means that they're already so weak and so sick. So bringing them here, they're already kind of on their last limb. Um, they're not like dogs and cats. They don't like people. They don't want to be around us. Um, so the fact that some random person in the street sees, you know, an injured monkey and is able to grab it and bring it to us, we already know that it's generally not going to make it because it is so weak and so injured. Um, so we deal a lot with death, but the, the ones that miraculously do make it, um, yeah, we have about a 60% release rate. Um, more so with mammals than I would say with birds. Birds are, are very sensitive and we don't get too many reptiles, not because Costa Rica doesn't have rep- that many reptiles. Um, there's an incredible amount of quantity of different species, um, but it's because of um, charisma. So the majority of animals we're getting are, are rescued by just people in the street that come across them. And people are, of course, more inclined to rescue a bird or a, a mammal than they are to rescue a snake or uh, a crocodile. I'm guessing and so that, you're not getting a ton of vipers. <laughs> no, <laughs> well, yeah, no. But no, exactly. And we get actually a lot of injuries with, with snakes, people like trying to machete them and trying to actually cut them. Um, recently, we just released her. We got... Um, a caiman that was um, attacked by a human like with like literally prodded with a, a metal stake they were trying to kill her mm-hmm. and then it, it was all happening very close to the house of our biologist and he like managed to like get her in and she was um, in recovery for quite a few weeks but actually last week they just released her so that was a happy story and for those of you out there that don't know what a caiman and it's like a small <laughs> crocodile right yeah <laughs> i know I, I learned about that when i visited belize uh, yeah, and you know, I, you know, they, 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 we we went to the uh, to the Belize Zoo, and they were telling us all about the Cayman, and mm-hmm. it's a super cool place. Yeah, they're like a cuter, smaller version of a crocodile. That's a good yeah. expert. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, um, the charisma factor is that how most animals come in? Is that just just people find them and bring them into you? Is that is that like the majority of the ones that you get? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, people, we also, the police will bring bring animals in and how Costa Rica works is there's this organization, it's a government branch called the MINAE, M-I-N-A-E, stands for 
a lot of different things. Um, so they are the legal representative that they work with, anything to do with the environment, whether it's plants, animals, wildlife. And um, so they will, for example, when we go to rescue an animal, because we also go to rescue if someone calls and says, oh, there's this animal, we have like a jurisdictional area that we can collect animals from. If it's outside of that area, the Minai, or we'll call them, and then they'll go pick the animal up and then bring them to us. Um, so they, it's probably half, half, like half them. And then the other half is between us and just good Samaritans, we call them. So just people that find the animals and bring them to us. That's awesome. I mean, that's like one of the things that I was struck by visiting Costa Rica was, you know, every country has its problems and its corruption. I'm sure, I know Costa Rica is no exception, but, yeah. uh, you know, just visiting a country that like doesn't have a, you know, a standing military Mm-hmm. Um, I think I heard the other fact was like 98% renewable energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to hear that, like, you have like a police force that's protecting animals or helping animals um, is like another example of the, you know, the country's ethos, which I think is, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I definitely experienced that visiting that most of the people that I met, most of the native Costa Ricans had this very, uh, environmentally conservationist mindset. Um, Mm -hmm. I think everybody, uh, most people seem to have a really strong connection in their minds between Costa Rica's economic status as a tourist destination and the necessity of protecting the natural beauty, the natural resource of the country Mm -hmm. and, and, I think more so than a lot of places really linking in their mind how important for their own economy it is to make sure that this place stays wild and this place stays protected. And you hear about, you know, you look on the map in Costa Rica and it's like, there's like one highway, right? Yeah, exactly. Most of it is like wild, unaccessible terrain. That's just rainforest and, you know, you mm-hmm. don't see that a lot in the modern world with a lot of countries. No, exactly. And unfortunately, it is changing a little bit. And, and I worry that in, you know, the next 10, 20 years, it is going to be just like a lot of other countries. Um, but yeah, it is. It's incredible, like to go from one side of the country to the other. It's only a few um, kilometers apart. But, you know, you have to go all the way to San Jose, which is the capital city, cross over. It's like an eight, nine hour trip when if you technically just cut, a, cut across, you could be there in like, what, an hour or two. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a that's a good thing, you know, that they aren't putting infrastructure before environment, at least for now, we hope. <laughs> yeah, I definitely had to shake some of my Western, uh, <laughs> you know, sensibilities about, you know, I was getting frustrated when I was like, yeah. this is a 50 mile trip. Why is it going to take me four hours? Yeah, exactly. But exactly. I'm sure you've experienced this. Like, you know, I grew up in a small town and in, in the pretty rural area, pretty nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it was just a slower life. And I think that like, that's actually really good for the psychology to, you know, we're so, I live in a city, I'm used to like fast pace, you mm-hmm. know, go, go, go. And, um, there's something to be said for the, you know, the psychology that arises when you, when you have to get a little more, uh, slow yourself down, get a little more in touch with yeah, exactly. the natural world and mm-hmm. you know, nature. And, you know, that's something I really appreciated about being in Costa Rica. 
Yeah, for sure. Tico time. It's very special. Tico time and Pura Vida life. Everything is like, oh yeah, eventually. Yeah, yeah. And it makes for, I think, a greater level of happiness and satisfaction when, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, and just, yeah, just slow down, relax. You don't have to speed through life. Yeah, I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious, can you explain, uh, like, what is the, like, what is the pipeline like for an animal that comes into your sanctuary from like the moment they arrive to let's say like take me through like arrival to release like what does that mm -hmm. uh what does that process look like yeah for sure i mean it depends a lot on the animal so we get an, a, a baby a nursery animal and we would first obviously receive it it always goes through checkups if it's just because it is abandoned and there's nothing actually wrong with it or like physically wrong with it. Then we have a specific building that's our nursery. And um, so this is where we have incubators, heat pads. It's like a very Zen place for little babies to be. Um, and this is part of a big part of the vet internship. So the interns are trained to basically care for the babies around the clock. So just like human babies, they're being fed throughout the day and throughout the night. So there's always somebody at night feeding the babies every just depending on what species we have every two to four hours and waking up throughout the night. Um, once they pass like the very initial week phase, we'll start taking them out of the nursery. So into our rehab center. So they'll be out just to get sun, fresh air, start like feeling natural life. And so they might just be out for a few hours. We put them back in inside uh, for the nighttime. Also keep in mind that it's Costa Rica. It rains like crazy here sometimes. So if we have a really weak young animal we can't leave it outside because it can get pneumonia really easily you can actually just die from being cold um so it's a very slow process we have to do um once it kind of does this like a little bit during the day and at night time it's back inside it gets a little bit older eventually it stays permanently in the rehab center in an enclosure um depending on the species it is if it's a, noct a nocturnal animal for example which are animals that are only awake at night time we wouldn't do anything with it during the day. We'd just leave it be. And then at night, people are also feeding it and caring for it. Um, once it passes the rehab stage, um, so they're old enough, um, we know that they're able to eat by themselves. They can move around well. And a lot of what we do, especially in our rehab center, is very zero contact. Um, we don't... We only have like a few people that are working with the animals. We don't have tours that come and see the animals. Um, we have a limited contact as much as possible. We, we try that the animals don't see us um, because a big issue that we deal with with babies is something called imprinting, where they assume that because we're feeding them and caring for them, that we are their mothers, which sounds really cute and amazing, but it's not. And the moment an animal is attached to us, they can't be released because they will go to humans either for food and then people will might take them and keep them as a pet or um, they might not want their attention and they might shoot them or poison them or harm them in any way so we really need to make sure that these animals are not attached to us in any way and we do that by having as limited contact as possible so when they're in the enclosures and we want to see how they're behaving we use a lot of um, camera traps which is i have one right here to show you and um, um, so it looks like a fun little camera and um, basically it's kind of like a cctv camera but not it doesn't play all the time it's just activated with movement and so we put these cameras and like that we're able to watch them how they're eating how they're moving without us physically standing there and and affecting their behavior 
um so sorry i went a bit off track but yeah anyway no, no, so no. after the after the rehab say, um, section uh, once we think that they're probably independent enough we send them down into the jungle we have larger enclosures that are further away from us and those are what we call our pre-release um, and that's kind of the last stage before they're released. Um, they're bigger enclosures, so if they're, it's a bird, for example, they can fly more. If it's a monkey, they can climb more. And there we're doing, like, very, we're literally just going there, popping in food and, and leaving them, making sure they obviously have fresh water. Um, and this is kind of like the last stage to really get them ready for life in the wild. So even, like, food we're giving them is going to be big, raw, nothing. They have to, we need to be sure that they're able to, um identify what they need to eat and this is where we also do these kind of tests and um, to see if the animals are releasable um, and obviously every single animal is going to be different um, if you have a squirrel for example um squirrel is like one of the biggest prey items here we need to make sure that they can identify what's a predator so smell sound and we need to know that if they do see a predator how do they react you know if a snake all of a sudden enters the enclosure do they jump up high or do they just avoid it or do they just like stare at it um if it's a prey um sorry that was prey if it's a predator like if we have a cat in rehab for example we need to make sure that it's able to hunt successfully because otherwise we're just throwing a cat out and it's gonna die of starvation so it's very species specific um and then we release the animal generally we always try to release them from the area they've come from and so whenever we intake an animal, there's a lot of paperwork we do to like keep track of everything. Um, sometimes we get an animal like the caiman um, from a very unsuitable habitat. So the caiman was found very close to people's houses. So of course, we're not going to release it back there. So we do a lot of surveying um, of different lands to see if it's an available, uh, suitable release site. And again, we use these camera traps to see if there's more of the same species. Of course, if it's a species that's very territorial, we can't release like a male into another male's territory. So there's so many different factors that come into place. And it's not just a one person job saying, yes, this animal is releasable or not. It's generally all the staff. We have like weekly meetings. Sometimes we don't because we're busy, but we used, we try to have weekly meetings and we like it's a group effort saying if this animal is releasable or not. Um, if it's like an adult, like today we got in an injured hawk. Um, obviously, first we receive it. We're checking it out in the clinic. Um, generally, the animal will stay in the clinic for a few days or weeks and under intensive care, depending on how bad they are. And this animal is going to be medicated every day. Um, probably has to have physiotherapy done to it. Um, and it's easier to keep it in a restrained space than in an enclosure where you have to run around every day trying to catch the animal to give it a little bit of antibiotics. Um, but once it's past the clinic phase, the same thing, then it's moved to the rehab and eventually pre-released and then eventually released. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, one of, one of my goals with this podcast or with a podcast, um, mm -hmm. I had this, this dream, you know, a, a few years ago, pre-pandemic, uh, you know, I'm a big traveler. Mm -hmm. I love, uh, you know, my, one of my big goals in life is to see as much of the world as I can. Mm -hmm. Um, and I realized that for a lot of young people, uh, especially in this country, you know, when I was, when I was growing up, you know, the idea is like you, you go to college, you go to university right out of high school, start mm -hmm. your career, figure out who you are as a person somewhere along the way. Um, and I know a lot of people in this country, uh, 
kind of go through the motions uh, and you're like your rite of passage or your coming of age mm-hmm. um, for a lot of people in our culture is like comes when you get your job, when you get your career started. That's like a big part of how people try to define who they are. You know, and we, you know, I, I think that there's an aspect of that that doesn't always lead to like the deepest satisfaction with your life. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of people with, you know, midlife crises realizing they spent 20 years of their life doing something they're not really into. They're not really active. Yeah. By. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I know that in the modern worlds, at least in the United States, college is becoming less and less, uh, what's the word? I, I think it's less and less of an advantage to have a college degree, university mm-hmm. degree in this country. Um, yeah. you know, there's, of course there's still going to be fields that are specialized, you know, the, the hard sciences, uh, you know, diff- different, uh, there are things that need certification, special specialization, but I think for a lot of young people, uh, there, there's this hunger to kind of figure out like, well, who am I? What do I care about? What are my values? And mm-hmm. I know for myself, travel has been a huge teacher in, in my life of, of discovering like, what do I actually care about? What is the gift that I want to share with the world? You know, what mm-hmm. am I meant to be doing? How am I going to be happy? How am I, how am I going to make my passion a sustainable one? How do I support myself? So with all that in mind, I had this, this, I have this dream of producing a, a podcast and a, like a video channel, uh, that kind of documents as I go around the world, um, you know, basically me going around and discovering or, or shedding light on different places for people to, to visit, to kind of build meaning into their lives, almost Mm -hmm. like a buffet of options for the, you know, the 18 to 21 year old who is excited about some things, but doesn't really Mm -hmm. know what they want to do and who has never traveled before, but who is interested in it. And I know like when you first start traveling can be a bit overwhelming. Where do I go? What do I do? There's so many options. It's a whole world out there. Um, And so what I'd like to provide is like, Hey, here's a whole, you know, series of examples of places that you can go and volunteer or work or study or meditate or, you know, there's so many different cool programs out there. I really want to give people an opportunity to, uh, you know, to make it easier, especially with Americans. We need to, most of us never leave this country. I think yeah. <laughs> uh, it would really benefit ourselves and the world to, to have more worldly people in this country. Um, so all that being said, to me, this this episode with you, uh, you know, where I've been thinking about it is is it's a great example of a program that people who are interested in learning more about the world, learning more about nature, learning more about themselves. Um, this mm-hmm. seems like one of those great options uh, that people can go and dedicate their time to a cause that's bigger than themselves. And I'm, I just wanted, this is all to like speak to the question, uh, you know, to talk about your area of expertise, which is this volunteer program. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and the types of people that you look for, how people can get involved and, uh, and what that whole experience is like? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, of course. So we basically, like I said um, at the beginning, we accept we have people from literally all over the world um, come to volunteer with us. There's like the volunteering program and the internship program that are slightly different. The volunteering program, you don't have to have any kind of animal experience. Um, you just have to be over 18 years old because we are dealing with dangerous animals. So we want to have, we can't work with kids, unfortunately. Um, and minimum of one week of volunteering, maximum of three months. Uh, but basically as a volunteer, and also depending on your level of experience, some people come here that have previously worked in sanctuaries. Some people like this is literally their first animal experience and they've never done anything before with animals. So we can kind of accept all kinds of um, backgrounds and yeah depending on what how long you can stay for um you're going to be trained to work in that with the animals in the sanctuary and the rehab side so every day there's a certain amount of kind of repetitive work which is the cleaning side of things so a lot of poop picking old food picking um then we present the food so like hiding the food around doing enrichment we build a lot of enrichment things and feeding the animals um, we do go to collect a lot of wild food. So going to the beach and collecting beach almonds from these trees that grow by the beach or specific wild leaves or termites nests for the anteaters. So it's definitely physical, hands-on, you're going to get sweaty kind of work. Um, you'll also be trained in the animal kitchen. So you have to do all the diet preps, which is super interesting, at least in my opinion. And um, you get to learn a lot about nutrition and supplementation and, you know, what one animal needs um, is very different from what another one needs. So that's a super cool part. Um, just general maintenance. So like fixing enclosures where in a very humid country, so everything kind of rots very quickly, breaks down. So all the animals have like perches in their enclosures, green things that we call brows which are like bushes and branches and um, so these constantly have to be replaced fixed so um, there's that aspect to it and then just being here you get to be exposed to all the rescues and releases so anytime we're called for a rescue they'll come with us um, and just be there of course the same with releases um, anything that's going on clinic related they're allowed to observe and watch um, so you're it's kind of like a lot but it's a little bit of everything and we just hope that people do go away with um, being more conscious about our actions and being more aware about what we do and our effect on the wildlife and on not just wildlife the environment as well you know um, and then our interns, on the other hand, so we have wildlife husbandry internship and vet internships. Um, the vet interns are, of course, for people that are studying to be vets or vet techs. And the wildlife husbandry ones are those who are studying like, conservation, like myself, or um, zoology. And a lot of we get a lot of students that come from universities and they need to carry out a certain amount of weeks of practicals um so you're going to be helping with all aspects of the sanctuary but they're given much more responsibility so these are the people that are going to be helping to feed the babies at night um, they all work on independent research projects so if they're studying something in university or in college that they're really interested in and they want to get more experience with then they can have the opportunity to do that here we give them all the equipment they need um we do a lot of like lectures and workshops um so it's more like school related in that sense they have certain criteria they have to fill and complete um, but both with both programs it's definitely a lot of hands-on work and a lot of um, 
yeah you're you're just exposed to so many different animals we're not like a sanctuary that just accepts one species we literally take everything um so you're 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 going to get to learn a lot about the different animals that we have here and the different issues that we have to deal with um and yeah apart from that like we understand that a lot of people are also here on holiday so they're not working every single day from seven to three there's certain days in between the day shift will take them to like nearby waterfalls and beaches and local markets and then also after work like um doing like sunset surfing times and and yeah just going somewhere to watch like the sunset together so it's like a, a balance between work but also you're all on vacation at the end of the day and you want to go out and experience the country and the nearby area yeah i think the night i met you 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 were kind of leading a group of was it interns or volunteers? I got a sense that you guys have a really family aesthetic yeah, in the program. Exactly. Can you talk a little bit about what the culture is like at the center and what it's like, you know, as a leader, you know, what, how do you think about building that sense of community with the people that come? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're kind of, you're very right. It is very communal based. The volunteers do live on site here and I personally don't live on site anymore. Um, but we have volunteer coordinators and an assistant that does. And um, so everybody shares the same housing space. Um, we have a cook who makes all our lunches and dinners. So we have like a big dining area and everybody eats together. And, you know, some people are here for three months, which is a long time. Um, and they might be, you know, their first time traveling away from home. So uh, you get like also some people that form really strong friendships and bonds. And we've dealt with a lot of people that cry when they leave because obviously you've been here for such a long time. But we try to... Um, yeah, where they're just, they're literally involved in all aspects of everything we do. And then the fact that we also socialize with them and go out with them, it gives us like good sense of, um, yeah, definitely community. What's and I'm sure, sorry. No, no, you go, you go. Um, no, I was just going to say, I'm sure you experience it here because the Costa Rican culture in general is very friendly and and welcoming. You know, you won't you would never go to anybody's house. And the, fir- the first thing they do is they offer you food and make sure you're comfortable and um apart from myself everybody else who works here is costa rican and you can definitely feel that sense like our cook is like our grandmother she's like she's very young but she's like Mm -hmm. feeding us all the time and there's always like cakes and everything around so there's definitely that nice sense of home feeling yeah i was i was really moved by the, the the costa rican culture i feel like um kind of what I observed as an armchair anthropologist, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, when I went there was like, here's this country of, it's like a country that decided that, look, we're going to build, I think I met a Costa Rica. They were telling me like in the sixties, the country, like as a whole kind of made this move towards a tourism based economy. And, you know, you go to some countries and there's a, uh, you know, especially as like a first world Westerner coming into another culture, there's a lot of countries you go to and it feels like there's uh, kind of an exploitation taking place or that it's Mm -hmm. kind of a, you're entering into this other country and a lot of the people are, are, are isolated from the benefits of that tourism or of that, uh, you know, movement of people. And for myself personally, like that can be a difficult, uh, reality to, you know, to, to, to struggle with or to, to, to be aware of. 
when I went to Costa Rica, I didn't really get that feeling. Like I felt like most people I met were aware of and welcoming of that dynamic. Mm -hmm. It felt a lot more balanced as far as like, uh, the locals participating in tourism, the visitors coming in, Mm -hmm. you know, I was learning about how much, um, you know, the government provides training. There's job opportunities. It seems Mm -hmm. like a much more consensual and mutually beneficial dynamic relative to some other countries. Mm -hmm. I know that there's a very high standard of living relative to a lot of uh, Central America and Costa Rica. It's one of the most wealthy countries in the, in the region. Mm -hmm. Um, And what was I going to say? Oh yeah. And the effects of that, of that, like uh, that philosophy, if you will, you know, I, I really was, was surprised and delighted by how kind of open-minded everybody is as a result. There's so many yeah. different people coming through that there's this like beautiful mix of ideas and backgrounds and philosophies that like everybody kind of is open to learning about, you know, different thoughts or different ways of thinking. And mm-hmm. I think that that's a huge benefit to anybody you know, looking to experience another culture is what a beautiful culture to get to come and, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. I was recently, I just came back last week and I was visiting another Central American country and everything was nice, but I was like, you just, yeah, you don't feel as at home there. Like, you know, the people like don't really want you there kind of. And I was (laughs) like, oh, I miss Costa Rica as soon as I arrived back. But yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with tourism and Costa Ricans understand that they unfortunately they do need tourism to survive and what's all Central American countries really do um, but over here the people actually treat you very nicely right the majority and they they they're very thankful and grateful and um, they also have so much to offer and they're so interesting and the stories that you can hear from them and learn from them um, are just very yeah you just like this is the best way to describe it is like it's a very homey feeling yeah, there's a sense of pride too. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I met I met people that were like, you know, running a zip line and there was no like you know, you go to you go to a spot in the US and someone's job is to run the zip line and maybe they are like in high school or whatever and they're just kind of like, yeah, whatever, this is just a job. This isn't like a high status thing. I want to be a yeah. TikTok influencer. This yeah. Like, like small potatoes, you know. Yeah. But but I would meet these people and they're like, "No, this is this is great." Like I you know, this yeah, I'm not like a famous person, but this job has its own sense of pride and value and I think that you know, what I experienced was a really strong sense of like the good form of nationalism, like positive nationalism and mm-hmm. then like People are really proud to be Costa Rican. And with that comes a, this kind of quiet confidence and acceptance of like, you know, yeah, you're coming to visit my country, but I'm welcoming you in. It's not that you're like coming and, you know, like taking Mm -hmm. advantage of the country or you're, you know, I think Costa Rica has done a really good job as a tourist destination of making sure that, that the, the, fact that it is a tourist place is not that that's a sustainable thing that it's not like mm-hmm. 
just an extraction based system, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You're very right. That's, that's super true. Um, yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, is there, are there any other things like uh, that, that you would like for, uh, you know, someone who's maybe thinking about doing a volunteer program or becoming an intern is there anything mm-hmm. else that you would, you know, any advice or any thing that you think people should know before they uh, make that decision? Um, no, I mean, definitely be aware of the environment that you're coming to. Um, we are very, I mean, the good thing is with where we are or Costa Rica in general is that you can be in the jungle, but not living like completely isolated. So like where we are right now on the top of a mountain or like a very steep hill. Um, and we are literally in, there's jungle everywhere. There's wildlife that's crossing through, but you can drive for 10 minutes and you're in the next town. You can go to the supermarket. So there is this good balance between really wild stuff, but also like the necessities we need for, for our modern day life. But with that being said, we do have, you know, snakes and spiders and mosquitoes everywhere. Um, so a lot of people that come here, they're, um, I don't know maybe they're not like completely aware that that is very different to what you're used to at home especially with regards to the bugs and so definitely like training if you're someone that's scared of spiders like get ready to see a lot of them you know they're (laughs) and and the majority of people will not like if they see a snake they are not going to kill it they can move it very safely and and put it away but we don't want to kind of interfere and that's the beautiful thing of this place is the majority of locals have this immense respect for wildlife and nature around them and they they also know so much about it so um, yeah it's just like funny for me being here like a lot of people will come to me and say oh I'm allergic to mud I'm like well <laughs> I just like sometimes I just never know what to say because like yeah. there's it rains a lot so mm-hmm. and that's going to be a bit difficult but yeah just definitely be aware of kind of the environment you're getting in but also a lot the majority of people kind of come here and go away with um and that's also why I've stayed it's not because of the amazing pay I get over here it's because of course you're working with animals but it's just the lifestyle the life you get to go after work you know and just sit by a beach where there's literally nobody else around you and which is um something very unusual this day and age um so yeah be kind of prepared to experience something that's really wonderful and very different to what we're all used to probably from back at home yeah, I was struck by, you know, as I was walk, you know, traveling through the country, this kind of speaks to one of the things you mentioned earlier in the conversation. Being in this tropical climate, it's like you're kind of witnessing the land itself digesting everything. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like any you you put up a sign, you put up a bus a bus stop or a building and from day 1 like the earth itself is like starting to break it down, starting to digest it. It's like being in a giant stomach, you know? Oh my God. So all my, I've gone through so many shoes being here. Just the (laughs) humidity just ruins everything. Yeah. Like technology, my my laptop is like in a rave. There's like a bunch of colorful lines across it. (laughs) Um, So it's definitely like, it's a a hard place to live in. I mean, like harsh in terms of the elements, but um, if you're like smart with how you treat certain things, then, then you're good. (laughs) Yeah, I think it also, again, influences 
you know, the way that, that we all think, you know, being in this place mm -hmm. that's constantly in a state of change, that's everything's being constantly renewed and digested and regurgitated. And, you know, that, that cycle is very present. And I became aware, you know, after being, I was there for a month, but just like mm -hmm. how that ceaseless cycle of change is also a beautiful you know, has a beautiful effect on, on the mind. And mm -hmm. it's such a beautiful place to come and make changes in your life. And, uh, you know, the, I found that it was given that every time I go to the tropics and this was no exception, mm -hmm. I do become a different person, you know, yeah. even in as mm -hmm. short as a couple of weeks or a month, it's this beautiful place to go and kind of renew your energy or your, essence yeah. mm -hmm. or, you know, I think a lot of people find value in that. Yeah, for sure. That's very true. Has has working there? I know you have a couple, a couple little doggies. I'm always seeing on your Instagram. <laughs> uh, has working there like kind of changed in your mind what it means to have pets and your relationship with your animals? Is that has that uh, you know changed at all since since coming to work there? Um, I mean, I've always had I've always had dogs at home. But it's definitely nice to have, because over here, like I said, we're very, like, we're not, we don't touch the animals, you don't handle them. So it's very strict, like you're around animals all the time, but you don't have any contact with them, which is, it's great. And mm -hmm. um, so it's good to have a dog because you can go home and like give all your love and all your attention to her and actually like yeah. pick her up. And, um, but it's also like an amazing place to have an animal, a pet, because they're so free and independent like my dog when i used to live in dominica before she would just like walk by herself to the river go to with her friends to the beach like they have such a cool independent life um they don't have to be on a leash and controlled and um and it, that also as if you're like you know a dog owner or a pet owner that brings you also joy to be able to see your dog running like crazy on the beach and not having to control them um so yeah yeah i had a hippie dog growing up too yeah <laughs> we'd take him to this little beach town and he'd just get to run wild and yeah, eat, exactly. eat food off the ground and, you know, mm -hmm. just get to be a dog. And he was always super happy when, when we would come back from that. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate, I know you're busy. I appreciate the time. Of course. And thank you for inviting me. This was great. Yeah. I, I and I want to just end it with, um, you know, all my guests, I ask, you know, if you want to be contacted, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Maybe uh, if someone's heard this conversation, they're like, oh, my God, I want to go do that. What's the best way that they can, you know, start that process? Um, you know, what are what, what's the way that people get in contact? Yeah, I mean, for the for volunteering interning, the best way is um, visiting our website. Um, it's alturaswildlifesanctuary.org and there we have all the information about the different programs we offer there's the if you basically you want to volunteer the first step is to fill out an application um there's lots of pictures and videos you can also follow us on our instagram i'm trying to keep it updated um whenever time allows me to but we post like yeah a lot of videos and stories also about the work we're doing the animals we're releasing and just also like the, the things we have to deal with that a lot of people don't even consider when when you're working with animals 
Um, so I'd say, yeah, definitely check out our website and visit us um, on Instagram. And um, I'm also managing the Instagram, so I'm trying to answer any like messages or anything pretty quickly. Um, What's so the Instagram be, handle? Uh, Alturas Wildlife. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll put the links yeah. to in the in the show descriptions if anybody listening you know wants to access that I'll, I'll make sure that that information is handy mm-hmm. yeah um and really we have a pretty good response rate like there's always somebody checking in emails every one to two days so um yeah we usually answer any inquiries pretty quickly awesome well hey again yeah. really appreciate you coming on and yeah thank you uh, for having me it's good seeing your face again and yes same um, likewise i know i look probably way different I, when, than when less tanned me, but, less tanned yeah, for sure less hair in general <laughs> too, I'm sure. oh yeah um, that's true yeah i had like nipple length hair the last time yeah. and a beard um well thank you so much christina this has been great uh all the best to you i know a couple people already that i'm going to be sending your way so awesome um, thank you maybe they can come and and volunteer and get to experience for sure that would be great we always want new different diverse people that would be awesome awesome well have a great day and uh best of luck down in dominique hall yeah thank you have a good day we'll keep in contact